HHS is adopting new rules that are attempting to crack down on poor performing nursing homes. Ron and I will discuss that, plus the rising cost of health insurance premiums and what's driving them up, and whether or not the COVID-19 vaccine should be part of the vaccine schedule for children. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. With us is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. It's good to be here as always. Again, if you haven't signed up for our uh, weekly e-newsletter, you can do that at flatlining.net. It's called the Friday Pulse Check, and we talk about some of the things that we publish on there, but we also talk about other things that we don't talk about on the podcast. So if you want to see more, check out the Friday Pulse Check. Uh, one thing that I, I do like to keep tabs on in the Friday Pulse Check uh, is different HHS and uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, news, you know, things coming out of their press office. And this one didn't make it into the newsletter last week, but it was a article that popped up this morning. And that is the Biden administration announcing plans to toughen oversight of some of the poorest performing nursing homes. Uh, and they plan to do this with escalating fines and even terminating federal funding for some of these homes if they fail to improve. Um, some of them Ron, have been given classifications when CMS investigates them uh, with a warning called immediate jeopardy. Uh, what's the immediate jeopardy warning? Well, immediate jeopardy warning is that CMS is concerned that the patients who are there are in immediate jeopardy of having a bad outcome. It's, it's sort of that um, warning of this is bad enough where we think it has a chance to negatively impact patient care um, fairly quickly. Um, and it's it's sort of that you need to get this fixed now or else bad bad things are going to happen to you kind of warning. Right. Do you know what kind of what kind of thing would cause a facility like a skilled nursing facility to get an immediate jeopardy warning? Um, usually, it comes from either um, some sort of a episodic or systematic bad patient outcome, mm -hmm. um, complaints. Um, or, or things like that. And, and then typically what will happen is there will be some kind of investigation by CMS and they will determine that either staffing ratios are too low or these kind of, you know, a, a perfect example is, you know, safety patient falls um, mm -hmm. get reported and more than the expected number of patient falls might lead one to believe that the patients aren't being appropriately cared for. There may be staffing ratio problems, et cetera. So it can be a number of things that sort of wake CMS up to that. Um, and then usually there's some sort of initial ev evaluation or, or review, and then the warning comes out along with typically mm -hmm. some things that they want addressed. It's right. sort of like, you know, failing a fire inspection and the fire marshal says, okay, you need to get a fire extinguisher over there. You need to do this and you need to do all this before I come back again, or else I'm going to pull your license kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the new things a Biden administration is doing is they're determining that facilities with two immediate jeopardy warnings, and, and the word that I saw in here was could, not will, uh, but could have their Medicare and Medicaid contracts terminated. Um, 
we were just talking before the program about how much money a lot of these skilled nursing facilities uh, receive and where it comes from. Um, and Ron, I guess how much of it is paid for out of pocket and how much is paid for by government programs? Well, and this is a, to me, this is a real telling statistic about why we're having trouble with skilled nursing facilities. Why in, you know, in a country where we espouse the quality of care that we provide, um, albeit very expensive, why do we have a segment of the care that seems to be not performing nearly as well? Um, and I think, my opinion, it's because when you look at it, roughly 75% of all the money that gets paid to these kind of facilities, skilled nursing facilities, comes from a governmental source, Medicare, Medicaid. Only 25% comes from out-of-pocket expense, private insurers, you know, or, or individuals. Mm -hmm. So these facilities, much more than other physician offices or other facilities or their hospital, are relying on Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, which is not very high. And so they're dealing with a very tight revenue number, trying to provide the care that they want to provide. I don't believe that there's really any facilities out there that want to provide bad care. Mm -hmm. But if you're only getting so much revenue, um, you've got to try to make that work for all the patients you're seeing. You can run into the kind of these kind of issues. It's that old thing we've talked about it several times. You can have access, you can have quality, or you can have low cost. You can probably have two of the three, but you can't have all three. Right. Well, in skilled nursing facilities, we've got a problem. We've got low cost, comparatively speaking. And what we're experiencing is that we're losing on quality from that, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. It especially appears that you could even say that the the sort of two strike uh, approach that the Biden administration is taking that you know if you have two immediately immediate jeopardy warnings and I'm not trying to trivialize the seriousness of the immediate mm -hmm. jeopardy warnings because those are serious things that need to be fixed. Um, but if they have those two immediate jeopardy warnings and the Biden administration follows through and cancels their Medicare Medicaid contracts, that really could end some of these skilled nursing facilities. Oh, yeah, it pretty much does, because there just isn't the kind of um, revenue there not associated with government payer to, to sort of make it work. So it, you know, it's typically a death blow. Now, usually if they pull their license, it's a temporary thing until they get things fixed and then they can start back up again. Um, but pulling a license creates other problems. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, it's not like there's ample beds available to move the patients who are there. And especially in some of the rural areas, where are they going to go? How far would you have to transfer them? Um, so it, it's one of those things where you've got to be very careful about doing that because you can make it even worse. Right. Absolutely. Uh, skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, I think, and I, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, a lot of them appear to be part of bigger, almost corporate kind of conglomerates. You know, you have big organizations that run a number of nursing home facilities. Um, I guess the first question is, is that is my perception of that accurate? I guess is my first question. Well, there are some definitely some big chains um, and they get a lot of attention because people get worried about is this, you know, corporations putting profits before care. Um, I've not seen significant data that shows that the care and the sort of the for-profit chains is, is universally significantly less. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, but it's something that 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 needs to be looked at. Um, but people forget there are almost fifteen thousand skilled nursing facilities in this country. So when you talk about these large chains that have a hundred or two hundred, 
that's still not a big portion of the overall number of skilled skilled nursing facilities. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is is really putting pressure on a lot of this, and I'm not trying to defend, you know, bad care that's provided at skilled nursing facilities, but there are a lot of factors that are going into it. We've started to see the occupancy rates go up and up. Um, and prior to 2021, it was about 69, 70%, okay? We're now seeing it at almost 80% occupancy rate. Now, the problem with this is you can never get to 100 because, you know, getting to 100% means that when a bed opens up, somebody, let's say, passes away, that there's an immediate person to fill that bed. Otherwise, there's always some transitional sort of um, occupancy as you try to make this work. And remember, this isn't like electricity where you can ship it all over the country at light speed. Mm-hmm. If there's a bed open up in Oregon, it doesn't really help us if we're over, you know, over demanded in North Carolina. You're not flying somebody to Oregon to fill right. that bed. So most people feel like when you're looking at facilities like this, hospitals do the same thing, that at about 80% capacity, you're full, meaning you really can't get much higher than that. Um, and you've got to start to, if you're a hospital, divert people. Well, the last number I saw the first quarter of 2022, the occupancy rate across the country was 77.6%. We're almost full and we're trending upward. That's putting significant pressure on these facilities. Add to that labor problems. You know, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't want to work at these facilities. If you're a nurse, it's not great pay. The conditions aren't fantastic. It's not a quote unquote happy place to be. As I talked to one nurse, they said, it's not like delivering babies where everybody's happy. You know, this is the end of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's significant pressure and stressors on this part of our delivery system. So it doesn't really surprise me that we're seeing some of these outcomes be not be wonderful. I I wonder whether, you know, threatening to pull somebody's license is necessarily the right way to do it. Or should we look at, you know, how do we support providing more capacity and, and, enough money to be able to provide the kind of care that we're looking for here. Right. And, and it's interesting that you, you mentioned that number of it, the capacity being almost full, given that, you know, more than 200,000 nursing home patients and staff died from COVID uh, just right. since 2020 alone, uh, that we've had that much growth, quote unquote growth in, in that sector um, mm-hmm. since the onset of the COVID pandemic. Right. Exactly. And, and it's, you know, it's something we've been seeing trending for a while. It's, you know, we've got an aging population. Um, you know, more and more people are sort of getting to that stage where they're going to go there. And so you're right, even with COVID, we're running into a capacity problem mm-hmm. um, with these kind of facilities. I mentioned uh, when I say the show notes uh, earlier today, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about two hospitals in North Carolina that both received immediate jeopardy rulings. Uh Earlier in the summer, one of them was the Wilson Medical Center, uh, which is a Duke Life Plant Hospital in Wilson, North Carolina. Uh, they had three pretty serious issues uh, that CMS found. Um, you know, a, one of them was a patient died after being sedated and left unattended. Uh, another patient died after his heart monitor was disconnected, and a third patient locked himself in the emergency room lobby bathroom uh, and threatened overdose on his medication. The other one was, uh, which struck me as weird that UNC Chapel Hill would get one of these, but UNC Chapel Hill got a um, immediate jeopardy warning uh, after a patient committed suicide after they were released from the hospital. So we, UNC Chapel Hill, I think, at least for North Carolinians, would be considered one, probably one of the best hospitals in the state. 
Wilson Medical Center maybe would be on the other end of that spectrum. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, on CMS making those rulings earlier this summer. And they had until September 30th to correct them, and both hospitals say they did. Um, but I haven't seen anything further from CMS on it. Well, I think, you know, I think this points out, and it's a good example, and I'm, I'm not wanting to pick on either facility, but it's a mm -hmm. wonderful example to show that we are stressing out the delivery system on all ends of the spectrum. You know, UNC Chapel Hill provides some phenomenal care and some really high-end quaternary level care. Um, I have a good friend of mine who, who um, their child had a very serious issue, pediatric neurosurgery need, went to UNC Chapel Hill, received wonderful care. The kid's running around like nothing happened mm -hmm. today. I mean, really, you know, world-class care, okay? The other end of the spectrum, Wilson Medical Center, is a rural hospital in a very rural county that is there because without it, there would be no hospital in that county. But you've got a very rural hospital who has issues, and you've got the other end of the spectrum, you know, a, a high-end, world-class care facility who has similar issues. You say, well, gosh, you know, how could that be? I might have expected it with something in the rural area, but how does UNC have that issue? Well, the issue is we're stressing out the system. You know, they're having a hard time staffing because of nursing costs going up. Remember that neither one of these facilities can just like a gas station change the price of their product. Right. You know, they get paid either by the government, which isn't going up in what they pay, or by insurance companies whose contracts aren't going up right now. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to, you know, as I think from, you know, one of my favorite quotes from uh, the, the Lord of the Rings movie is, I think, you know, Bilbo Baggins says, I feel, I feel thin like not enough butter spread over too much bread. Well, that's what mm. they're doing right now. Right. They're feeling real thin trying to cover all this. And when that happens, you know, mistakes happen um, or things that are less than optimal happen. It's, it's the same reason why, you know, they don't let pilots fly over a certain number of hours mm -hmm. um, because mistakes happen. But that's what's happening in our delivery system right now. I, as we wrap up this topic, I want to turn back to the nursing homes for just a second because one of the other um, Biden administration things was directing CMS to advise states to consider having minimum staffing levels at, at nursing homes, because right now that's all set at the state level. Um, so mm. the federal federal government hasn't been able to make any minimum staffing levels at some of these skilled nursing facilities. Do you think that's an appropriate answer, given the labor shortage that we're currently experiencing? Well, it, it gets into, you know, pick your poison, okay? Um, I think minimum staffing levels per patient or et cetera, it's not a bad thing. You know, it'll help ensure quality. I mean, it's got to be the right staff, and are they really good? But but it's a good step in the right direction. You need to have at least X number of nurses per X number of patients or et cetera. But then what you do if you set that is what happens to that rural facility who can't meet it? Do they start shutting down wings or whole, you know, areas of their number of beds? Do they close completely? Um, and then where do those patients go? Because if you're already at close to capacity, um, and then setting those kind of minimum staffing levels. So it's really what's worse, not enough staff and running the risk of a bad outcome or enough staff and having closed down beds and have somebody have no place to go. Right. Um, and it's one of those, you know, you damned if you do, damned if you don't problems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, we'll have more on this uh, and some news articles about this particular issue with CMS uh, looking to put some more restrictions on nursing homes, kind of you know, as the Biden administration, Biden administration says, to crack down on some of the poorest performing facilities. Uh, you can find those at flatlining.net or on the show notes for this program. 
And stay tuned, coming up in the final thought, we're going to be talking about some of Rishi Sunak's ideas for reforming the NHS. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. turn now to a little bit more of what we do in our business, Ron, at Fulcrum Strategies, and that's talking about health insurance. And uh, statistically, the premiums go up um, almost every year, and we're looking at them possibly going up even more with some analysis saying that federal employees are expecting uh, nearly a 9% premium hike going into 2023. Um, The Willis Towers Watson uh, organization, which does a lot of research around the world, released their 2023 survey, which studied uh, 257 insurers in 55 countries, including the U.S., and they asked them what was driving up uh, some of their health insurance costs. Uh, 75% of them said it was providers recommending too many services. 52% of them said that it was members' poor health habits. And 35% of them cited profit motivation of providers. I want to deal. I want to dive into all of those one by one, uh, if you don't mind, Ron, but I also want to talk about realistically as someone, you know, when we step back and look at it from the non-payer world, you know, what does drive up premium costs? And I guess we should start there. Well, I think there isn't a single thing. Um, The system is too big. It's too complex to think about that. All of the things that they cited are contributors. Completely agree. But that's not an exclusive list. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one could add to that list the profit motivation of the for-profit publicly traded insurance companies drive mm-hmm. up insurance prices. One could add to that list a number of things. Um, you know, the fact that we had a period of time in this country where certain things, a lot of preventative things weren't done. And I'll pick an easy one. You know, there was a significant reduction during COVID of women getting their screening mammograms. Mm-hmm. Okay. For a lot of obvious reasons. Well, we know that if you stop screening for breast cancer, you're going to have higher than expected cancer rates and more expensive treatment down the road. So same thing you could be said for things like colon cancer and other things. So, you know, there is probably, you could probably come up with a list of, of 10 to 15 things that are all factors in driving up healthcare. General inflation um, is going to drive up the price of insurance. Um, the, mm-hmm. the insurance companies, the hospitals, the providers are not immune for the fact that their employees need more money because they it takes more to fill up their gas tank or pay their rent or their mortgage. So, um, you know, it, everybody wants to look for that one villain 
you know, that, that guy in the black hat who comes into the Western and the menacing music. And that just, just isn't there. There isn't one villain. It's a whole bunch of them. I thought it was a little bit amusing that um, the health insurance companies, and I know you said that this is a part of it, and I don't disagree, but the 75% of health insurers said that it's providers providing too many, recommending too many services. I don't know if uh, you or I would necessarily agree with that. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that particular note. Well, uh, you know, I'll be honest enough to say, are there physicians who recommend things that really don't have a good clinical justification? That's overutilization. Absolutely there are, mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, okay? Not all of them necessarily bad. Um, there's been a lot of studies that show that defensive medicine chews up a lot of money. That's a provider who's going, look, I don't think I need this, but I better order this MRI because mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, I'm going to get sued and I'm going to have malpractice case. Okay, that's defensive medicine. It's overutilization, but not because the doctor is, is profit motivated. Some of them, as with any profession, are profit motivated. You know, doctors saying, look, I can't make any money anywhere else. I'm going to order this test and I'm going to get paid for it. Um, some of them are patient driven. You know, I've talked to a lot of physicians who say, look, you know, I've got this nervous mom who thinks that their child's issue has got to be a brain tumor and she's just not going to sleep until I order that brain MRI, even though I've tried mm -hmm. to tell her it's not that. And at some point you just go ahead and do it because mom's beside herself. You know, there are adults who are in that same thing. Well, doc, how can you be 100% sure it's not this? Well, no, I can't be 100%. Well, then I want that study and I've got good insurance. So some of it is, you know, patient-driven overutilization. Um, some of it is, you know, what I'll call sloppy medicine. You know, and we talked about the, you know, the problems that happen in the delivery system when we stress it too hard. Mm -hmm. Physicians feeling like, or mid-levels or whatever, feeling like you've got to see too many patients in the day just to pay the rent and light the lights. And, you know, things get a little sloppy, if you will. Um, so is overutilization driving up um, premiums? Sure. Do I think it's the number one issue? Absolutely not. Right. It's not that big, but it's definitely an issue. Mm -hmm. um, with a lot of different reasons for it. And I just think that that's interesting that, that that would come up as, as one of the majority issues of what the respondents of the survey said, given that at least in the United States, as we've talked about before, the top, the five unhealthiest people or 5% of the unhealthiest people, excuse me, 5% of the population consume, you know, 50% of the healthcare, as we've talked about before, you know, the, the least healthiest people are the ones that, that, that drive a lot of the costs. Well, and so, yeah, and, and I mean, but if you think about who they asked the survey, you know, it's sort of like, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. If you're an insurance company, none of it's yeah. my fault. I mean, I, you know, are we surprised that they didn't go, you know what, it's us. Yeah. We're getting huge bonuses <laughs> and making too much profit. I mean, they're not going to say that. Mm -hmm. So the first thing they do is they point to the people that they're adversaries with, the providers. It's just them. They're ordering too many services. Mm -hmm. The next thing they do is they talk about their unhealthy members. And then they go back and point to the providers again. Oh, and by the way, not only are they owning too many services, they're, they just want profit. Right. I thought that was kind of hilarious that mm -hmm. they cited profit motivations of providers. When I know that of those 257 insurers, many of them are for-profit companies who mm -hmm. are profit motivated. And we've talked about this before. They should be profit motivated. If you're publicly traded, that's what you should do. That's how a capitalistic economy works. But 
don't point to the other guy and say it's because he wants profit when you're doing the same thing. That's mm -hmm. a bit, you know, hypocritical in my opinion. And I do want to point out that this the survey did include, you know, 55 countries, not just the U.S., um, where healthcare mm -hmm. is done differently. And I would argue that in a lot of other countries, it is possible that certain that a lot of these things, you know, maybe do happen oh, yeah. um, compared sure. to how we do things here in the United States. I'll, I'll be idealistic and hoping that the, the U.S. would lead the world in the, being not the problem on these particular issues, although I don't know if I could say that uh, for certain. Um, Wendell Potter, who we've looked at before, uh, a mm -hmm. former insurance insider uh, who's now on the outside and frequently criticizes big insurance companies and is uh, sympathetic to Medicare for All, uh, he was very frustrated about this particular survey, and I want to read a quote from his column about it. Uh, he said, if the big consulting and insurance company execs had any idea what it is like for somebody with insurance to ration their insulin, they might begin to get it. If they had to walk away from the pharmacy counter without their medications because of exorbitant deductibles that insurance companies insist they pay before their coverage kicks in, maybe they'd have an aha moment. Do you think any of these insurance companies will ever have an aha moment when it comes to, you know, doing different surveys like this? Or do you even think that Willis Towers Watson should have had an aha moment when doing this survey? Well, it's two separate. So I would have loved to seen, you know, Willis Towers Watson broaden their survey to include more than just health insurers. It'd be interesting to compare that response to hospital executives, to mm. physicians, yeah. to consumers you know, see how those things matched up. What do the hospital executives say is the reason where for costs are going up? What do consumers say about it? You know, at, at Big Pharma. I mean, so it would have been nice for that to be a broader picture. And I completely agree with Wendell on that. You know, I, I like Wendell and I understand what he's saying. And I agree with him in one perspective that, you know, when insurance companies are making record profits, and they are, and I mean, United Healthcare had to just increase their, their profit um, guidance for next year to Wall Street. That's hard to swallow when you see people, and from when, when, in the place where Wendell grew up, he sees people that you know really struggle for basic healthcare needs. So I get that. Now the problem that I have is, I think it's unreasonable in our society with the way it's set up right now to ask a CEO of any for-profit company to ignore his shareholders mm -hmm. and do things that he knows will reduce profits. So part of our windows argument, and I get it is the CEO of United, I'm just picking on United. You take yep. Cigna and Humana, it doesn't matter. Could say, look, I'm going to lower my premiums to help all these people who are having a hard struggling to pay for this stuff. And I'm going to take my profit load down by 20%. Okay. Now the instant he even mentions that his stock price tanks, Mm -hmm. And right. two minutes after that, the board of directors fires him. Yeah. Okay. And, and what people don't fully understand and the way our system works, and I'm not defending the system, I'm just saying it is what it is, mm -hmm. is that when that stock price tanks, there's a bunch of people that rely on that for their 401k or their retirement funds who Absolutely. also just took a bath. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, my point is it's, it's not an isolated, closed environment. He can't just give that money back without other repercussions like retirement funds going down. I don't want mine going down mm -hmm. um, or people who rely on the dividend from that company to, to help subsidize their retirement. And the person who does that, the CEO does that for something that's publicly traded instantly gets fired by his board because that's not what he's supposed to do. 
So, you know, I get what Wendell's saying, and I, I think it, it's, it must be horrible to, to ration your insulin or to take half mm-hmm. a pill when you know you need a full pill. And I, I'm not disputing that. But I just don't think we can count on the the insurance companies to do that out of the goodness of their heart because it's not what they're supposed to do, and they then they don't get paid to do that. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned the stock price thing because that's something that's frustrated me um, when because President Biden has said this frequently, and I find it very frustrating when he says the stock market is is not a good tell of the American economy because most you know the stock market doesn't affect Americans. Well. It does, exactly as you said, through their retirement funds. Most Americans' retirement funds are tied to the stock market in some way, either through mutual funds or ETFs. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you. I'm just glad you mentioned that with regards to, to the insurance companies. With the system that we have, as, as we talked about before, that you know, it's it's one of those things where maybe it's a it's better than it's pretty bad, but worse than all the rest. In the system that we have, what are possible ways to reform it so that we don't have you know, 9% premium hikes um, coming up in the next year? Is it, you know, breaking up big insurance? Is it forcing blue insurance to take a, you know, a a Blue Cross nonprofit model? Um, What what sort of answers might there be to real reform to kind of keep premiums from going up as as high as they can? Well, um, I think there's a number of things. First of all, if you're going to, if you're going to try to put controls on the profit levels of the insurance companies that's incredibly difficult to do unless you just sort of make it a a government run program Mm -hmm. like medicare for all which i'm not a fan of but i'm just saying let's remember that when the affordable care act got passed all those years ago one of the things it said was that for fully insured business what we typically think of insurance not the large companies that are self-insured that there's this medical loss ratio that has to be achieved and basically what it said is, is, you know, roughly 85 cents out of every dollar has to be paid for the provision of care. And if you think about it, insurance company, it takes them about 11 cents out of every dollar to do the administration, you know, the, mm-hmm. the sales and claims payment, all that stuff. Which means that if they hit it just right, their profit margin's about 4%. Okay, so they mandated. And if you made more than that, if you only paid out 80 cents out of every dollar for care, meaning you overcharged on your product, you had to give that money back to your customers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was an attempt to control insurance company profits. And last year, United had record profits. My point mm-hmm. is, you know, it's like the it's like when people try to close a loophole in the tax law. Smart people, if there's a lot of money involved, and Lord knows there's a lot of money involved in healthcare, will right. figure out a way around it. They didn't break the law. They just figured out how to make, still make more money going forward. So that capping their profits is going to be extremely difficult to do. So my opinion is don't go after the 4% profit margin. Okay, we've already tried to do that. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Go after what's driving up those input costs. Go after the things of, well, if 5% of the population chews up 50% of the cost, how do we provide them with the services to try to lower their cost? Case management. How do we make sure that that, diabetic who we know is going to chew up a lot of cost is involved in programs to help every way we can with their diet and with exercise and things like that how do we try to fight obesity in this country or how do we try to fight you know the uh, the issues around the opioid crisis um, how do we deal with more effectively deal with some of these ongoing disease states and their high costs so go after that kind of stuff and, and go after the incredibly unhealthy lifestyle 
um, I think we've we had talked in one program before about it's interesting that if you're a bad driver in this country um, and get a lot of speeding tickets, your insurance costs go up. There's some direct mm -hmm. incentive there. Now, if I choose to eat three meals a day at McDonald's and not exercise and 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 smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, my insurance costs don't really go up. And I'm not saying that we should penalize people who are unhealthy, but we could do the other side. We can incentivize people through rebates or through reductions in their insurance costs for their or their employers or whatever if they go down more healthy lifestyle. If you're in an active program with a physician to lose weight or you're working with a dietitian to try to get your diabetes under control or and there's a number of these things or you're you know you go through a smoking cessation program why not reward mm -hmm. good behavior sort of like the good driver program at some of the auto insurance companies so right. again i think that attacking the profit level of the insurance companies just has shown it doesn't work and it's not really where it's at what we need to start doing is try to attack the other side of it mm -hmm. one way as we've talked about before as well that the the Biden administration has attempted to uh curb out-of-pocket costs for Americans was the insulin cap, uh, as we talked mm -hmm. about before, that was part of the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the quote-unquote negotiation of uh, drug prices by Medicare, which, as we said before, not really negotiation because it's the federal government and it's only five drugs a year. What other, are there real ways that the federal government can do things to keep out-of-pocket costs from going up, either you know, we we talked about the you just talked about the uh, going after the profits for insurance companies, but are there other things other than trying to cap premiums or something like that that the federal government can do uh, to help uh, Americans, particularly now when inflation is so high, to keep uh, out of pocket costs from going up? Yeah, I mean, I again, I go back to the, and it's not that it's a. Uh, a bad thing to try to like, let's say cap out-of-pocket costs on insulin. Okay. You know, because if, if you're an insulin dependent diabetic, then, you know, that's a very real expense and we know what happens when you can't get your insulin. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to try to do. Um, legislating, you know, maximums on certain things like that has its own problems. Okay. But I keep back to, well, maybe, just maybe, in addition to trying to make sure that um, uh, that you're not letting, you know, not having too much people spend too much money on insulin for diabetes. Maybe we could find out why are the diabetic rate in this country is so high and try mm -hmm. to lower it because it gets a whole lot easier to control insulin costs if we don't have as many diabetics um, in this country. Uh, but that's a more difficult thing. It's easier to just say, well, I'm going to make sure nobody pays more than X dollars for their insulin. Uh, that you can legislate. Legislating healthy behavior becomes much harder. Mm -hmm. I want to use this opportunity to transition into the other topic we had in here, but I'll start by saying uh, that the news broke last week that Pfizer had announced what the price for their uh, community, which is the brand name of their COVID-19 vaccine, will cost uh, after the federal government stops subsidizing it. Uh, and they announced that they will charge patients between $110 and $130 per vaccine uh, if they do not have health insurance. They said if you have a health insurance, it will, I think in most cases, be zero. Um, as we talk about out-of-pocket costs here. Right now, the, the government pays about $30 per dose for the community vaccine. Um, what do we, what, what should Americans make of a price hike like this? And is it really a price hike or is it more just this is how the drug market generally works when it comes to vaccines? 
Well, it's it's a combination of a couple of things. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a combination of there's retail price and then there's what insurance companies are going to pay, which are mm -hmm. always two different prices. Right. You know, it doesn't matter almost what you look at and what the drug is. You've got their their sort of list price and then what the insurance companies will pay. My guess is the insurance companies are going to pay something a whole lot closer to the thirty bucks. Right. Um, I haven't seen that that number yet, but you know they're not going to pay one hundred ten bucks for this vaccine. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what we've got, and this happens a lot in this country, is the, the only people that are going to pay that 110 to 130, and there's going to be a lot of, you know, programs to try to help that as well, are the people who, A, can probably least afford it, meaning they, they make enough money not to qualify for Medicaid, mm -hmm. not enough, probably not a good enough job to have really great health insurance. They're sort of in that interim, or they're, you know, um, undocumented aliens here and they can't get insurance from that perspective mm -hmm. and they can't get Medicaid or, you know, so they're that gap that, which are also a population that probably need it the most. They're probably other than right. the elderly, which all have Medicare, um, they're most at risk. So yeah, that creates a, a bit of a problem for them. But again, we get back to how do you tell a for-profit insurance or for-profit company what they can sell their product for? That becomes, you know, problematic and where does that stop so the good news is it's really in a in a country of you know 330 million people the number of people that are going to need that vaccine that don't have insurance um and are going to be staring down that 110 bucks is a fairly small number you know mm -hmm. 14 million something like that right. um is the current uninsured sort of population number um and you know it's not like you got to get the vaccine every month drug you got to take every month mm -hmm. um right so, especially as that's talk, what's going on. Yeah, and especially as we talk yeah. about moving to annual doses uh, for COVID nineteen, right. as I think both Moderna and Pfizer have talked about. I'm sure Johnson Johnson and, and AstraZeneca have as as well. When the what, what's the new one that got approved um, not too long ago? The name is now escaping me. But oh, I remember yeah, it all shouted out. About. Yeah, it was another yeah. uh, protein-based one, if mm -hmm. I recall. Yep. Uh, but I wanted to switch now into another uh, COVID-19 vaccine discussion, and that's uh, that last week the CDC voted to add COVID-19 shots to the child immunization schedule. And that's the schedule that already includes uh, MMR, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, tetanus, diphtheria, uh, pertussis, or Tdap, and polio. Already, you have some governors, uh, the governors of Tennessee, Virginia, Oklahoma, Florida, and Arkansas, who have said that they will not put this in place as a requirement for children uh, to go to school. Why would this, I guess I'll start with this, why would the CDC want to add, um, and I'll be a little bit sarcastic here, why would they want to add COVID-19? Because as I say, as I see on the internet, you know, I think kids are basically immune to COVID-19. Yeah. That's that's what I've been told, at least. So why bother adding COVID-19 to the immunization schedule? Well, um, yeah, as we chuckle about kids are immune, um, I, I heard somebody the other day say some flippant comment about, well, only 1,400 children have died from, like, did you just put the word only in front of that? I mean, right. My God, if there was a mass shooting of 1,400 kids, we would absolutely go berserk, as mm -hmm. we should. So anyways, um, yeah, clearly we're tongue-in-cheek on the kids are immune. They're not immune. Um, granted, it is absolutely clinically true that they do not have nearly the risk profile as people with you know, other underlying conditions or the elderly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, but to the question of why would CDC add it, from a purely clinical perspective, it should be added from a purely clinical perspective. Okay. It is a vaccine that is highly effective, that is very, very safe, 
probably has had the biggest, you know, rollout of a vaccine in the world. So we know it's mm -hmm. safe. Um, and from a purely clinical perspective, even when you say, well, kids don't get it nearly as bad, you can say, yeah, but we're keeping kids from, from getting it or we're getting them to, to, you know, to rid of the virus, shed the virus more quickly so they don't infect the other people in their house who may be more at risk, the elderly, their grandparents, et cetera. So I get the clinical argument. Now, the problem that I have is you can make that clinical argument if you're going to say, well, we're going to mandate things. Um, to protect the population. Okay, well then I want to mandate that there is no such thing as tobacco, that there's no such thing as alcohol, that there's mm -hmm. no such thing as the supersizing the Big Mac meal or big gulps or, and I'm again, I'm being facetious, but there are a lot of things that are very bad for us that are legal, not, not restricted at all. Well, if we're going to work off the perspective of, well, this is a good thing to do, there are a lot of things that are good to do that we don't do because we try to keep that balance. Personally, I don't think the vaccine should be added to the school schedule because I think it's going to create too much pushback and you could you could pull, have people start pulling their kids out of all the vaccines because it's part of that schedule. We've already seen polio start to show up in the wastewater in New York City. We thought mm -hmm. we'd gotten rid of that. It's going to be too much. And I think that the... Um, the virus has mutated enough to where it's safe enough and we've got good enough treatments for it that this doesn't need to be on that list. This is different than polio. This is different than, you know, diphtheria and some of these other diseases. Um, it mm -hmm. has mutated enough to where it's nowhere near as severe as it was. So personally, and that's just my own personal feeling, I think it's a mistake to add it for all the reasons and all the uproar it's going to create. And it doesn't have, a strong enough clinical need in my opinion now at the same time i say that my kids are all vaccinated and they'll continue to be vaccinated but that's my mm -hmm. decision you right know? so um the other thing i point to and, and i find this to be a bit you know this a little hypocritical is you know there's a lot of discussion around the hpv virus mm -hmm. and that's not mandated okay now, your, your pediatrician will strongly recommend it if you have a girl between such an age and such an age and not sexually active, et cetera. But that's, you know, a situation where they decided not to mandate it. And now with this one, they are. And the cancers that the HPV vaccine prevents are obviously more severe than what, you know, COVID would be for a child of that age. So right. it's just one of those things where, you know, we've got to be very careful about how we you know, how we start tacking onto this or else we're going to have too many people just go the hell with it. I'm not doing any of it mm -hmm. because of how politicized it's been, been. And then I don't want to see polio come back. Right. Well, and I'm glad we're, we're having this discussion because I, I knew I could trust you to have a, if you disagreed that you would have a reasoned uh, response as to why you disagreed, as opposed to some people on the internet that I spent time reading this morning. Um, <laughs> When we think about COVID, because this was this was my thought process when I first uh, read this particular headline, was that you know COVID nineteen, as we talked about, since it has mutated to a point where it is significantly less severe, um, I wonder if it's merely a temporary addition to the schedule, similar to how it was highly recommended during H one N one that everyone get a flu vaccine that year, despite the mm -hmm. fact the flu vaccine is not on the uh, immunization schedule. It's not required for children to go to school. 
is it possible that this is a temporary addition, or do you think that based off how the CDC did it, it's going to be a more permanent addition? Well, and that's, you know, that's a big unknown. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, I think in the very beginning of COVID, it would have been better if they had described this as, you know, we're mandating this vaccine until such time as right. um, the, vac the, the virus mutates to where it's no, not nearly as severe, which we're there, and we have better treatments and testing for it, which we're there. Um, and they could have even said, and we'll review this recommendation in six months or a year, um, and we may remove it from that. From everything I've seen about what they're talking about, the CD, and it's not been added yet, but what they're talking about, I'm not seeing any talk about, well, for six months or for a year, and then we'll review it. Um, and it's a little bit late to sort of be mandating this when we've already had the, you know, the virus um, mutate to less severity and we've got much better treatments now and all that other stuff. I mean, um, so, you know, I, you could do that, but I think that should have been done back when this first came out and was approved for kids when the uproar happened. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of different um, commentaries out this that, that I, I threw into our, our show notes today. And one of them is from Vinay Prasad, uh, who his bio was not very detail. What it says is hematology, oncology, medicine, health policy, epidemiology, associate professor. Uh, didn't say where uh, when I read it. Um, and he's got a couple of different points as to why he thinks this is a bad idea. And one of the ones that he mentioned was that he, that it's because, and I felt that this was more of a political note as opposed to a, you know, a medical note, which is that the CDC is at odds with parents' preferences. I would imagine that sometimes it in order to be in medicine and we can, you know, we can talk to some of our, our physician clients and other doctors that we know, and that sometimes you do have to be at odds with what people would prefer. And it seems like in this case, if parent, even if parents disagree, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a horrible idea. Yeah. I mean, I think there at least needs to be some understanding of how a, a public policy mandate, um, is going to be received by the public. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. um, we don't live in a dictatorship where one person or one department gets to decide how we live. Um, so that, that needs to be part of the discussion. Now, that being said, um, you're not going to please all the people all the time. And I'm sure there are times, and, and it happened with the first, you know, the first vaccine. Um, with the vaccine cards and everything where people up in mm -hmm. arms, I have my, I have my Liberty. I mean, I, I got into arguments ad nauseum with people who said, um, well, they can't mandate a vaccine. And I said, there is a Supreme court ruling from a long time ago that says they can, mm -hmm. you know, so come on, you know, that, that, that was right. decided a while ago. So, um, you know, there are times when you are going to be at odds with parents or with some of the public, et cetera. And you just got to make sure that you're on firm ground, to do just that, that, that this mm -hmm. is a, you know, a truly, Hey, the, 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 the risks of not requiring this far outweigh the risks of requiring it. And whether that's right. so you're going to be angry with me or the one in a million risk of somebody's going to die from this strange thing. Um, I just am not sure that, that we're there mm -hmm. right now, that the pushback is much greater than the real need to have this be mandated. You know, as someone who doesn't agree with the CDC decision to require this, um, 
as part of it. Which, by the way, like I said, it's left up to the states. You already have several states saying mm-hmm. they're not going to require it. But the CDC right. to add it to the child immunization schedule. As someone who disagrees with that, I want to read you some of these these comments of people that agreed with this article who, from um, uh, Prasad, who also disagreed with it, but for different reasons than you did. Uh, and one of them, one of these commenters said that this is another example of how corrupt our institutions have become. Vaccines have saved countless lives, but to mandate a vaccine for a demographic that is consistently shown to be one of the least vulnerable to the disease in question is a purely political rather than a medical decision. And it's a real uh, tragedy. Imagine if a more virulent and deadly disease were to spread now, there would be mere anarchy. I'm just curious what your initial reaction to something like that would be. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a political decision because I think politically it's one of the problems. If anything, heading into a midterm election, um, the, the you know controlling party that controls the presidency, the Democrats, would want to not do this right now because they're going to catch flack for it. So I don't think it's a political decision. I think the, the people at the CDC are looking through the, at this through the prism of a purely clinical, a good vaccine? Answer, yes. Okay. Is it effective? Yes. Is it safe? Absolutely. Well, it's good then, clinically. And it, would, it be, would it be better if all of our children who are going to school were vaccinated and therefore reduce the transmission of this virus amongst themselves and amongst the people that they live with, the adults who could be more at risk? Absolutely, answer that is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they look at this and they look at the number of like 1,400 kids below the age of 18 that died from COVID, and they think that's a tragedy. One child is tragedy. So I don't mm-hmm. think this is political. I think it's a bunch of well-meaning people who are looking at this from a, a cl- clinical perspective and saying this checks all my boxes. You should do it. And those, the people who are checking it probably don't understand why anybody wouldn't be thrilled to line up to get this vaccine. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why people aren't vaccinated personally, right. but mm-hmm. there's more, you know, there, there's more than just that purely clinical light. Right. Um, and I just don't think they're they're And it, maybe it's not their job to look at that way. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another political. Here's another, a little bit more outlandish, uh, uh, in my opinion, comment. And I, I have to read it only because we represent doctors and I, I feel we ought to step up to the plate to defend them in this sense. This person alleges that they were a doctor. He says, now I watch in disbelief as my colleagues, well-trained and experienced, walk lockstep with the stomping, marching brown shirts of the American medical regime. Not only is free inquiry out the window, many frontline physicians are perfectly happy to punish their colleagues for questioning the ill-considered and politically motivated mandates of an elite cabal of medical sellouts. I don't believe there's an elite cabal of medical sellouts anywhere, considering that 98% of physicians are vaccinated against COVID-19. That doesn't sound like an elite cabal to me. Yeah, I I mean... Um, and who knows if that person really is a doctor or not. Right. And maybe they are. I mean, in every profession, there are um, people at the fringe um, yep. in a lot of and ways. We, you so, know, we dealt with uh, one of them a couple months ago on this oh, podcast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to, you know, to start using references to Nazi Germany and the brown shirts and an elite cabal and stuff, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it, it, but it, it's a good example of where we are uh, as a country. I mean, I, I had a, and I know this is a little off topic, but it's a similar thing. I had a discussion with the other day with somebody trying to explain to me that all of this inflation, all of it, was all the corporations got together 
and they all raise their prices for the sole purpose of, of making the midterm elections go Republican so that the Republicans would stop taxing them. And that's what they were doing, that this was this big, huge <laughs> conspiracy amongst for-profit companies to in you know unnecessarily raise prices because it would cause inflation and it would cause the midterms to flip Republican and then they wouldn't be taxed anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, well, I, I can tell you categorically, that's not what it's from. And the person well, what makes you think you know. And I said, because I'm an economist, you know, and I can point right. to the, I mean, let me show you one chart on what happened with money supply. There's where your inflation's coming from. Nope, nope, nope. It's just all, and it's the same thing. It's a bunch of brown shirt corporate cabal who's, you know, deciding to destroy the country so they can get the, oh, come on. Right. Um, and it's the same thing with it. These aren't doctors going lockstep with some sort of cabal. Come on. That's ridiculous. And even to assume, as some people have, that the medical societies like the AMA are somehow have been infiltrated or corrupted, you know, with fake scientists, I think is a little bit. And this this person didn't say that, but you know, other people that we've read on the internet, the people we've talked about on this program, have have said th things to that effect, um, and it's just simply not true. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like. I mean, I, I, I hearken back to the people who thought that we really didn't land on the moon and it was all done at a soundstage in Hollywood and all this, some of the other stuff that the world is flat. I mean, come on, you know, right. let's let's get back to reality, Dill, and, and have an honest discussion. Before I continue, I, I thought you'd appreciate this, that I came across a, a flat earther thing on, on Facebook the other day, and, and this flat earther was referring to, uh, well, what I would consider normal people as ball earthers. So... I, Thought that was rather amusing that we now have a title by the flat Earth. Community. We have a title for being yes. for being part of the part of the uh, conspiracy to to try to make people think the Earth is round. Right. Yeah. Um, when we look at comments like this, because we all know people, and Thanksgiving's coming up, and we're going to be hanging out mm -hmm. with friends and family who may or may not think this way. How do we treat conversations like this? respectfully but also truthfully and it doesn't even necessarily have to be i mean i would take it from a christian perspective you know love your neighbor but even if it's just you're taking it from the generally be a good person kind of thing how do we have these kinds of conversations respectfully but also truthfully boy and that and that's a tough one um it really is because it's hard not to get too much emotion into it and it's hard not to reach for that thing that you want to reach for Right. which is the easy thing of saying you're an idiot and you're a moron and that gets personal from my perspective when i'm trying to have a discussion with somebody that i think is is not fully educated on the issue one is i want to ask them a lot of questions you know what makes you believe that what makes you think that where, where, where's the evidence behind that and and not from a, a an accusatory perspective i really want to know i mean mm -hmm. you you have a deep-seated belief in something and it's clear that you you firmly believe that and i want to know why because and i'll even say to him because if i'm wrong i want to be educated if you're mm -hmm. looking at information that i don't have i want to see it sometimes when they can't answer those questions it starts to become obvious to them you know um you know well you, you say that this is a dangerous vaccine where's that coming from what what, what data is that where what's the source of that etc um so I like to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I like to try to, if, if, if the discussion hasn't gotten too heated, say, well, I want to make sure I understand what you want me to believe. You, you want me to believe that something is really bad that we're doing and I'm taking the vaccine. And that the people who should be most educated on the science behind it, physicians, have 98% of them have allowed that substance to be injected into their arm. 
So I, I, mm -hmm. that seems in, in, incompatible to me. It's one thing for me to espouse something. It's a whole different thing for me to then drink the Kool-Aid. If I know there's poison in the Kool-Aid, why would I do that? Um, and sometimes that helps. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and then when we get to things like this, like the vaccine or whatever, you know, my failsafe is talk to your doctor. Right. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to the media. Don't listen to, you know, whichever side, the, the, the right media, the left media. Mm -hmm. Forget all that. If that doesn't go have an honest conversation with your doctor. And, and I always, and I do this not for things well beyond the vaccine. If, if a doctor saying, well, I think you should do this, I'll always say, if I was your brother, would you recommend the same thing? If this was your wife, would you recommend the same thing? If it was a family member? And you know what? The really good doctors, when I've had like those gray area decisions, I'll give you a perfect example. When my father who died of cancer mm -hmm. and he had two cancers and was having dementia and everything. And I remember talking to his oncologist and his oncologist was saying, we can do this and we can do this and we can do this. And I said, all right, if he was your father and you were his oncologist, would you recommend that he receive those treatments? And he said, absolutely not, Ron. Absolutely not. Not for my dad. I said, why? And he goes, because it's going to be a lot of pain and I don't think there's a positive outcome to it. Mm -hmm. Great. That's all I needed to know. So it's that same thing. Talk to your doctor. Are you vaccinated? Are your kids vaccinated? Why? Right. Why did you do it? Why should I do it? What are the, what's the science behind this? I know we've told this story before, but, um, you know, my wife and I have a son with autism. And when we first got diagnosed and we were learning about all the, and there was that cloud of, did, is this caused by vaccines? And he was a month before his third birthday. So he's in the middle of that whole regiment. And we sat down and talked to our pediatrician. He was wonderful. And he talked about when he was training, because he was fairly uh, advanced in his career at the time, how he watched kids die of polio and how the people that he's hiring now have never seen a case of polio in their training. Mm -hmm. And he talked about all this. And then at the end of it, he said, and if he was my son, I would vaccinate him because it's safe. Right. Um, so, you know, that's my last thing is just talk to somebody who knows, talk mm -hmm. to a doctor. But there's a huge part of the population. None of that's going to convince them. Right. And in this commenter even pointed that out that he, he and quote unquote, many other people he knows don't trust their doctor to treat flu symptoms anymore. So why bother listening to the doctors, sure. which for me, I think that's an incredibly um, depressing way to walk about your life of not trusting yeah. anyone uh, or anything. Um, right. Personally, I don't think I have that much brain capacity to spend on, on things like that. I would rather be more trusting because then I can focus on other things that I actually care about as opposed to exactly. you know, whether or not I'm going to get killed from a vaccine, which millions of other people have had. And then in the end, you know, uh, there's been several times where I'd say, well, look, I respect your right to have your own opinions and mm -hmm. have your own beliefs. And I hope you respect my right to have mine. And let's just agree to disagree and not talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. Well, we're just about out of time. So Ron, thanks again for joining us on the Flatlining Podcast. No, thank you. In our final thought today, I'm going to let Britain's new prime minister do most of the speaking. Rishi Sunak was elected by his party earlier this week to take over for the woman he lost an election to almost two months ago. Sunak and Truss both appeared on a Sky News debate back in August, and he was asked by a town councilman how they were going to bring NHS dentistry back to his town. 
Sunak answered by discussing his ideas for the NHS, and the other voice you'll hear in this clip is Sky News anchor Kay Burley. Take a listen. Uh, look, the NHS, first of all, is everyone's number one public service yeah. priority. And I grew up in an NHS household. You may have heard on this campaign, my dad was he a GP. He never mentions it. And my mum, <laughs> just checking, you never know, right? You know, and my mum ran uh, a chemist where I grew up. So I spent my time working in that. I understand how important, especially primary care is. But look, you know, if we're going to get to grips with this and make sure that there is money for NHS dentistry, we just have to be bolder about reforming the NHS to get more efficiency out of it. Now, I'm someone who you can absolutely trust with the NHS. I'm someone who did something quite difficult, and that's create a new funding stream to support not just the NHS, but social care, because it does start with putting more resources in to help recover from the pandemic. Was an easy thing for me to do. Lots of people are upset with me about it, but I believe it was the right thing for the country, the right thing to support our fantastic NHS doctors and nurses. But money's not enough. We need to reform things so we can get more efficiency and invest in things like dentistry. I'll give you one example of something that I'm prepared to do, which is a bit bold, it is a bit radical, and not everyone will love it, but I want to show you that I'm going to bring some change, and that's tackling missed appointments. Now, we have over 10 million missed appointments every year, and it's not just GPs, it's in hospitals. At the same time, we've got lots of people sitting there anxiously waiting for treatment. And I've said that's not acceptable. So we need to be tougher on missed appointments, because if we are, then if people can cancel them in advance properly, we free up all that extra capacity, and none of us have had to pay an extra penny in taxes to do that. How is that workable, though? Thank you. How's that think... workable? How's that workable? What about people who can't afford to pay the £10, and they miss the f so they can't pay to afford to pay their fine? Um, do they not get treatment in future? What happens? Well, actually, Kay, as I said, it you don't have to do it on people's first missed. It can be for people who missed a second appointment, because there are just so many that there's a lot of space in the system. And I do think it's right to actually say, hang on, we believe in an NHS that's free at the point of use, but it's not free at the point of misuse. And when people don't show up for appointments, they are depriving other people of treatment that they need. So there's someone equally vulnerable waiting there, sitting on a waiting list, waiting to see their uh, consultant or their GP, and they're not getting that chance because someone else has just not bothered to show up, and that's not all right. And uh, look, there will be some people like you who say, oh, gosh, maybe we shouldn't do that. But if we're not it's prepared not to be... It's not me saying it, it's well, the Lancet well, well, saying well, it. If the Lancet we're not is saying it's low socioeconomic backgrounds okay. that miss their appointments for all but, sorts of reasons. And, 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 they can't and you can be compassionate first time, but at the end of the day, if we all want to cut taxes in this country, if we want to find money to spend more on dentistry, we have to be prepared to do things differently, challenge the system, and that's what I'm prepared to do. Because I want to have great healthcare. I want to have great dentistry for you and for my future fillings, but I do want to be able to cut your taxes too. We're only going to be able to do that if we're going to reform things and do things differently. That's the kind of prime minister I'm going to be. Let us know what you think about Rishi Sunak's ideas in the comments at flatlining.net or tweet me. I'm at Radio Handley on Twitter. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.